Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. I've been battling allergies for years now. Let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available release sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. What's up, gang? Welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazde. I'm so pumped to have you here with me. Now, listen, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. Number one, people who are living their passions. And number two, those who are creating greatness in the world and doing both of these things despite the odds against them. Each episode, we're going to feature interviews with game changers, business leaders, you know, telling us their origin stories, what made them tick, what got them to where they are now. Why? So it can help you step into your greatness within your life, your business, and your career. Occasionally, you might hear a few solo episodes from myself, moi, as I say, as I leverage my 20 years of entrepreneurship as a CEO and founder to help you grow and level up in your journey to scale your life and your business. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversation, and I'm stoked to have you here with me. Wow, what can I say? Lynn Twist, what an amazing human. Uh, she came on the show. We talked about all these things that she did. I mean, we got a little a little crazy talking about mystical stuff, but uh, she talked about living a committed life, her book, uh, which is Finding Freedom and Fulfillment in a Purpose Larger Than Yourself. Uh, what an amazing story. Um, she has just done so many amazing things in her life. Um, talk about the Hunger Project, how she's literally ending worldwide hunger through the Hunger Project has gotten 6 million people involved. It's just an absolute, you know, twisting and turning uh, as we talk about interest, no pun intended, but stay tuned. Hope you enjoyed the, the episode. Guys, welcome to this episode of The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazi, and boy, do we have an amazing guest. Oh my gosh, Lynn Twist is in the house. Lynn, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> you know, so listeners, you guys don't know this, but Lynn has been uh, on my list for a while she uh she's a former GOT speaker and participant and uh and I have never met Lynn before but I have heard her names her name thrown around by so many people I respect where they're like oh that one year when Lynn came and we did this thing and then we did this thing in the Amazon and I was like I want to meet Lynn Twist <laughs> and it's so today's the day it's like Christmas in my house um so I'm so I've been so excited to have you here um, and I'm really excited to talk about all the amazing things you've done in your life and the work that you're putting out there, the new book, and then some. So first of all, I just want to say welcome to the show, Lynn. I'm so glad to have you here. Thanks. Um, do you mind if I do a little bit of housekeeping and then we'll get rolling? Please do. Please do. All right, let's do it. So for audience members who are new to the show, Greatness Machine, we're about two things. We're about people who are living their passions, those who are creating greatness in the world, and those that have done so despite the odds. And Lynn is neither short of passion nor greatness, um, as we're going to learn soon here. So as I mentioned before, I, I came to learn of Lynn through my GOT family. And fast forward to about, I don't know, nine months ago, I'm, I'm uh, listening to Happy Money by Ken Honda, and he's talking about Lynn's book. Uh, which is the soul of money. And, you know, I've talked a lot about this on the show, like my relationship with money, which I've, I've just recently kind of overcome my, this really would say kind of a toxic relationship with money. 
And and so I put her book on my list, but I was like, oh, I'll reach out to her and see if she wants to come on the show and we can talk about the book. And her team was like, oh, she has a new book, Living a Committed Life. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. So, um, so, uh, so we got, we're, we're, we're here to talk about that today, the books and as well as all these other amazing things. I mean, Buckminster Fuller and oh my God, Est, it's like the, the list goes on and on of all these things that have crossed paths in my life that I wanted to uh, introduce the show to. But um, I want to I give your formal bio. So for listeners who are not familiar with Lynn, uh, she's by, coming to us by way of San Francisco. I, being a fellow s- former San Franciscan, can love and appreciate that. She's an award-winning speaker, the co-founder of the Pachamama Alliance, founder of the Soul Money Institute, and author of The Soul of Money, as well as Living a Committed Life, Finding Freedom and Fulfillment in a Purpose Larger Than Yourself. So with that said... Lynn, welcome to the show. Um, I'd like to start by us. You know, we love origin stories here at the Greatness Machine. I think that when people hear people's kind of beginnings and and how they got to where they're at, it, it gives a little bit of context on on how it's possible for us people, us no, normal morals who are trying to create greatness, to know that hey, the people that are on the show, they're mortals too. They just they just did the things that need to happen to really live their calling. Um, so yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit of your origin story if you don't mind. Well, I have several different uh, chapters in my life um, that have different origin stories, but it's all connected. So I'll start with uh, when I was uh, a young girl, I was a, just before my 14th birthday, my father died suddenly of a heart attack uh, in the middle of the night with no warning. And he was 50 years old. So it was really a shock for our family. I'm the third in four kids. And my mom was completely unprepared. She was 36 and Oh, no, she was 46, sorry, 46. But she didn't know where the safe deposit box key was. She didn't know about the insurance. She didn't, you know, she was so unprepared for her husband to drop dead in the middle of the night. He just, he, he didn't even struggle. He was, you know, they were sleeping in the same bed in the morning. She, he looked kind of tired to her, so she let him sleep. And then when she went back a couple hours later, he was cold. He was dead. Um, and it was just like a horrendous shock for her and for all of us. And I... As a child, I was still kind of a child, but I, you know, as a young, young teen, a tween, <laughs> um, and girls are often kind of not always, but in some cases, before they really mature, they're kind of in love with their dad, and I was kind of in love with him. He was a musician, and he was famous, and he was charismatic, and I played the piano, and I took tap dancing and ballet and every possible lesson to please him. And when he died, I somehow, without thinking this thought thought, well, God, it must be my fault. And I think that's, I found out that that's quite typical of children who lose a parent or there's a divorce or some tragedy. They, Mm. you know, you kind of think it's your fault, even though you don't consciously believe that. It's in your, I don't know, in your molecules or something. And so I got very uh, spiritual, I would say now, but then what I knew was religion, a little little, little bit religious. Um, uh, and it took me from being a popular high school kid, you know, cheerleader, homecoming queen, kind of dating the football captain kind of person who I was, to uh, having that outer life, which was looked really good and everything was like perfect. But then inner life was a very deep inner life to sort of heal from my, my dad's death. And um, so I'll say that is really the truthful origin of so much of what I feel I am today. But 
then later in life, when I after I got married and started to have children, I went to Stanford. I married my Stanford boyfriend, my beloved Bill Twist. I've been married to him for you know decades and decades and decades, and we have kids. And um, but early in my married life, I um, I took something called the EST training, and I know you know what that is. And the EST training was is an early uh, kind of groundbreaking program of the human potential movement. I took it in 1974, so a long time ago. And it was uh, two or three years old, and it was very controversial and kind of weird. And it was, uh, you know, uh, people were curious about it, but they didn't trust it. It, was, it had a little cult feeling to it. But mm-hmm. I absolutely loved it. And it kind of bonked me on the head like a two by four and woke me up from being down a track of, oh, Bill and I need to join a country club. Oh, Bill and I need to, he's starting to make some money. I need to know more about wine. Oh, Bill and I, he's making a little more money now. He looks like he's going to really do well. I better, we better have a, uh, we have better do, uh, instead of going camping on vacation, we should go to Provence, you know, (laughs) or we should, um, we should know about, um, we should know more about art. You know, I was trying to be hip and cool and someone who's like that. And then, I took the S training and bang, I realized I was living an inauthentic life, trying to live mm. up, fit in. And that woke me up to living a life that's authentic, that's about making a difference with my life, about being in touch with my own humanity, my own humility, and full self-expression. So I'll stop there. That's part one of your question. <laughs> yeah, you know, I appreciate that. I'd like to kind of take a step back because you know, one of the first questions I when I was listening to your book, you know, it it sounds like you have had mystical experiences even from childhood. And you talk about this moment when you were in a garden and there was a statue that like I mean, I, I, I don't want to know if I want to give it away, but like you said the statue started crying and there's this god moment. And how how old were you again when your father passed away? Right. I, I was for it was the day before my 14th birthday. So I was, you know, 13 and 364 days. So I was 14. And you, did you grow up? It sounded like you grew up in a, was it a Catholic environment or it was a religious yeah. environment? Is that correct? It was a Catholic. We were a Catholic family. We weren't super religious, but we went to mass every week. And I, um, and I, I, I went to public school cause I was really that kind of a person. I wanted to be in a big high school. Uh, but I went to Sunday school and I had a, a a really beautiful Sunday school teacher who was a nun named Sister Benjamin. And she, my mother had a, was overwhelmed when my father died because my father was a famous man. He was a, a band leader and a musician. And so she was overwhelmed with the press and uh, the fans and, you know, what am I going to do about the money? And ah, so the kids were kind of farmed out, all four of us, to other families while she sorted out, oh my God, what do I do? And I went into the arms of Sister Benjamin, my my nun Sunday school teacher who just saved my life. So, um, yeah. So I can't remember your question. Did I answer it? <laughs> yeah. So, 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 so yeah, I just wanted to get some clarity on that. I wasn't sure how old you were. Cause obviously you, you talk about this, this, like you blame yourself for your father's death and that there's this moment when you're in a garden and you see, I think it's a, it's like a statue of, of, you know, Mary, I think it was, I, I yes, don't remember if right. it was, who it was and that she, yeah. the statue started crying. Mm-hmm. And, and so for like, an, a person that maybe has not had a mystical experience, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that because I'm, I'm a person that has friends who are a bit mystical and I, and so I, I've, I can appreciate that. And, but I wanted you to kind of talk a little bit about that because I think that 
for people that have not had that experience, they may read your book or might hear something like that and be like, oh, this sounds crazy. But can you talk about that experience at all? Yeah. Well, I, you know, when you look back on something, it makes total sense to you. At the time, I was so in such deep grief and shock from my father's death that I went on retreat, uh, a, a, a Catholic retreat at a convent near my in, in, right near where I grew up in Evanston, Illinois, and the convent was called Cabrini Green, and it was in Des Plaines, maybe an hour from my house. And I told my friends I was going to see my grandmother because I missed the big football game, and I was missing, you know, all the cool stuff, and I was a cool kid, so why wasn't Lynn here? Well, I said to everybody I was going to see my grandmother, which was a big lie. I went to this retreat center to, to grieve and lament and cry over my father's death, and um, I was walking in a garden at this beautiful, you know, very simple convent, actually it was, um, and retreat center. And there was a statue of the Virgin Mary. And as I said, you know, I, I, it, I sort of went to religion. I didn't really know about spirituality then. So religion was kind of my go-to place. And I remember kneeling in front of the statue and I was crying. And I put my my arms out to you know, the Virgin Mary, you know, I'm so sorry. I've lost my dad. I don't I can't remember what I said, but the statue literally started crying in my, that's my memory and my experience. And then at a certain point, her arms went up too. I can't remember if I put that in the book, but it was just, yeah, you, you know, you did, you put that. It in the was book. just like, this is like impossible, but I'm being blessed. I'm, this is a holy reverent moment. This is, I'm, I'm being absolved almost like, and I, I remember it was so moving. And so it wasn't shocking. It was, it was validating. It was affirming. It was healing. It was, and it wasn't confusing. It was deeply, deeply moving and beautiful. Um, and that was the first mystical experience that I can actually remember so that I can talk about it. After that in my life, it's almost like that opened an aperture, like a doorway, mm. a portal to know that there's other ways of knowing. And um, since that time, you know, obviously now, fast forward many, many years, I work with indigenous peoples of the Amazon. I, I worked with Mother Teresa in, in India. I've had many amazing experiences that weren't technically religious, but deeply spiritual and you could say mystical Um but that was the first one that I can really remember. And it really, really changed my understanding of reality. It just changed everything because mm-hmm. suddenly I had a much bigger, there was a much bigger world than the one we can touch and feel and, and navigate. Do you think, um, so Mike, the big question I want to ask you is, you know, obviously, and we're going to get into, you know, your the, all, a lot of the things you've done throughout your life, but I don't know. I, I'm trying to think of the right way to ask this question. But here, I'm, I'm just going to say it the way I, the, what question popped in my head when I read that in the book, which was, do you think God chooses people to have those moments specifically so that the, there's work that can be done at a, at a, at a level that many people that don't have those experiences don't get chosen to have those. Does that make sense? Like that there's yeah. this, like, I just, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Um, I don't know. That's the real answer. What I would suggest is that God comes through where there's an opening, where there's an aperture. 
And often a cancer diagnosis, the death of a parent, um, even a bankruptcy or tragedy, creates an opening where your heart is broken open. And when your heart is broken open, you're available to life in a different way. And that was the case for me. So I'm not saying I was chosen or not chosen. I'm just saying my heart was broken open and there was an opening, an aperture, a, a clearing for that to come through. Hmm. I love that. And so, so you had that moment. And I, I think you also mentioned that you had another moment where your, your father actually came to you and told you that he wanted you to start what it was okay to play piano again or to, to, to perform again. Was that, that do you want to talk um, about that a little bit? Yeah, because the S training was so powerful for me. You know, everybody has different things. Some people become Buddhist. Some people, you know, uh, find a guru. Some people, um, you know, it happens in, through poetry or or uh, they read a book and suddenly everything changes. For me, the S training was just like a huge deal. And I, I'm, I'm not saying that was true for everybody, although many, many people would say that. Um, and in the S training, I, I think what happened was there were processes in there where I completed my guilt about my father's death. I didn't even know I had this guilt. I didn't, you know, I didn't, it wasn't cognitive. It wasn't, it was just like, I, I, I realized it in the S training in 1974 when I was 20-something years old. I'm not, I, I've been holding myself accountable for my father's death, and that's just not true. He died. <laughs> he had a heart attack. It's not my fault. And so I completed it because my, um, when I unpacked it in the S training, it was, it, I, I realized that it was because I hadn't practiced the piano. He was a pianist. And mm -hmm. I had stopped practicing the piano and my piano teacher, I had started cheating on, on my piano teacher. I mean, there's a whole thing there, a whole story there, but it, 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 it bottom line was I was a naughty girl because I didn't practice my piano. Now this is, I mean, I'm 14 years old, but still I wanted to please my dad more than anything in the world. And when I stopped practicing and I didn't have time to practice and I started having boyfriends and my friends were more important than practicing piano, that was, um, that was healed in the S training. And I realized that's, that's not why he died. He died because he died. <laughs> and I stopped practicing the piano and that wasn't the reason he died. And I completed it. And so when I completed it, um, I was free. I became free. I became whole, I would say. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. In the world of successful partnerships, names like Procter & Gamble, Ben & Jerry, and Supply & Demand echo through business history. But when it comes to growing your business, who are the perfect partners? That's you and Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. We're talking from launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we hit a million dollar order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Picture this, a time when my business was facing a tough hurdle and I wasn't sure how to break through. But then came the breakthrough moment, a game changer that took my business to the next level. 
You know, what I absolutely adore about Shopify is its unparalleled ability to adapt and grow with your ambitions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 75 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Darius, all lowercase. That's D-A-R-I-U-S. Go to shopify.com slash Darius now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Darius. Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. Hey there, friends. It's Darius from Shazda here, and I have a little confession to make. You see, I've been battling allergies for years now, and let me tell you, They've been a real ordeal in my life. Allergies have been my constant companion. They stopped me from fully enjoying the little things in life, canceling plans with friends because of sudden allergy attack to missing out on an outdoor activity because of the sneezing fits. Allergies have been a real nuisance. Luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing and a runny nose itchy, watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. I've been a Claritin D user for many, many years now, and let me tell you, it's made a world of difference. Since I started using Claritin D, my symptoms have improved dramatically. Now, I can breathe easier, enjoy outdoor activities without worrying about sneezing fits, and truly live my life without being held back by allergies. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter now. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear uses directed. What What do you, um, so, you know, number one, thank you for sharing that. But I wanted to kind of fast forward because you end up going to Stanford and that was your father's alma mater. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. And so, so you end up at Stanford, you meet your husband, I think you called him, I wrote down the, the there was an acronym, BMOC, big man on campus. Um, and so <laughs> you end up kind of in this hedonic lifestyle of, you know, keeping up with the Joneses and, you know, San Francisco. And what's interesting is that, like this time period, like the mid to late 60s, early 70s, there was this like collective consciousness happening in the Bay Area right? Summer of Love happened in 1969 in Panhandle Park. And, you know, the Haight-Ashbury was going off, the Grateful Dead was happening. And we had a lot of anti-war things happening with Vietnam War. So, so I mean, it's, it's interesting that you went from a place literally like halfway across the United States to the center of the universe as far as this collective consciousness. And, and so I, I guess my question for you is, do you think that you were drawn there from like, I, I believe that there's like certain vibrations that kind of draw us to certain places. I went to San Francisco in 2001. It resonated for me. I'm now in Austin. It resonates with me. I feel there's an energy here. Did, were you drawn to the energy? I mean, to San Francisco, do you remember having those feelings? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Um, well, my, my mother was from San Francisco. She was born and raised there. So um, okay. we went to San Francisco to see my grandmother a lot. And I always thought someday I'm going to live in San Francisco. I love San Francisco. I love the ocean. I love the city. I loved how cosmopolitan and classy uh, it was. I, I just thought it was the coolest ever. And then, you know, I prayed like a maniac because that's what I did at that time. That was my spiritual thing, praying um, that I would get into Stanford like my dad. 
so that mm -hmm. I could go to California and, and live in the Bay Area at least for four years. And then I ended up getting into Stanford. I, I thought, oh, that's a terrible mistake they're making, but I'm not, I'm going to pretend like it's <laughs> not. And then they, they, I slipped through the cracks somehow. And then I, you know, made peace with that and married my Stanford sweetheart, Bill Twist. And, uh, and we knew we were going to live in San Francisco. He took a job in, um, well, actually we, he came to, we came back to Chicago and he went to Northwestern business school, which was great for us. Cause then he bonded with my family and my sisters and my mom and everything. So that was two years in Chicago, which is where I was from. So that was great. But as soon as he started interviewing for jobs and he was number one in his class at business school, you know, he's a superstar. Um, uh, he, it, he really took the interviews, most of them for any firm that would place us in San Francisco. So we really both wanted to go there. And he is from Newport beach. So he's a California guy. He's a long line of Californians. His, his, you know, he goes several generations back to California. So he really wanted to get back to California. And I always wanted to live in California and we wanted Northern California. So it was, it was so it was kind of on a practical level, which is I'm speaking about, you're talking about on a deeper level. I think that deeper level was also there for both of us, but we didn't talk mm. like that then. We didn't say those things. And and I would say it did pull me there because I was a, during Stanford, I was one of the people who was against the war. You know, when I was at Stanford, Robert Kennedy, John Kennedy, uh, Malcolm X were assassinated. And then after I graduated uh, I don't know if I had this in the right order, but there were five, in five years, there were four assassinations of the heroes of my generation. Right. The Kennedys, Malcolm X, and, Ro and Martin Luther King. And and so it was jarring. And when, and I, I, I was an on-campus, you know, against the war, big on the civil rights movement, all of that. So when we went to Chicago, I wanted to get back in that action. And that was happening in San Francisco. So that's oh, awesome. I love yeah. So, so what, what drew you to Est? Because obviously you had three kids, 1973, your husband's like moving on up the corporate ladder in, you know, the business world of, you know, high flying San Francisco. Uh, you had talked about, you know, this whole going to Provence and, you know, figuring out wine and all of a sudden Est lands in your lap. What was the introduction? What was the introduction there? And for, for people that don't know what Est is, maybe if you don't mind giving them a little bit of background, I'd, I'd appreciate that. Um, well, EST was a, a program invented and created by Werner Erhard and um, out of many, many disciplines that he participated in to create a transformational experience that um, that was uh, of transforming our consciousness from being living in an inauthentic way, trying to fit in, trying to be somebody we're not, to discovering who you really are, the, 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 the profound humility of understanding who you are and that the fact that you could make a difference with your life, I would say, you know, there's a lot of ways to talk about it, but that's one way. And, um, and then it became what's now called landmark, uh, the landmark education corporation runs something called the forum, which is the, uh, the thing that came after the, the S training. Uh, we were also kind of asleep. Then the S training was kind of It was a big wake up, you know, it was kind of harsh. Uh, and then the landmark is not, um, as, harsh landmark forum because there's much more consciousness now in the world. But anyway, that's what it is. And, um, and I, I mean, <laughs> it's funny how I, I ended up there. I, I saw my friend Sandra, who I just talked to yesterday um, at a party in Sausalito across the Bay from San Francisco. And 
she looked so different to me. Um, I saw her across the room at a party and she, she'd lost some weight. So that, that, you know, that was kind of obvious, but she was kind of glowing. I mean, really, she was like luminous and she's a really cool person. I admire her. So I, I remember making my way through the, through the people over to Sandra. I said, Sandra, you look so great. You've lost weight, but there's something else. You just look so radiant. And she said, well, I just took this thing. I can't explain it. But it was two weekends in a hotel room with one leader and 250 people. It's called the S training. And I'm just floating on air. It's like, I, I don't know. I just feel fantastic about life. And I can feel that it's not temporary. It's like something magical, miraculous happened there. I, I, I can't tell. I can't explain it. But I can feel it. And I said, well, you look it. Where do I sign? <laughs> you know, I, I just, I couldn't wait to do whatever it was. She, I didn't want to even know another thing about it. I just wanted to do it. And so I, it, you know, she said, well, here's where you go. We didn't have internet and all the stuff we have now. So here's where you go. Uh, next Tuesday night, there's this thing. It's a guest seminar. It's a, you can just go. It's free. It's at this hotel. Um, just go and find out for yourself. But I, I highly recommend it. So I went and I signed up right away. I mean, no one needed to convince me. And then I took it and Bill went to, Bill went to this guest event to sign up or to find out about it. And he was reluctant. Everybody had name tags on. They were too happy. They were <laughs> like, too happy. they were all, everybody was like happy and smiley. And it was kind of like, he was a little like, this is too much. But I was thought, oh, my God, I want to be like these people. So I said, I'll take it first. And then if I if it if it works for me and I like it, you take it. And I came back from it and I was like transformed. I remember standing at the sink. I can't remember what's in the book and what's not, but I was standing in the sink in our in our flat. Uh, I was washing the dishes after I took the S training. It was like a you know, a Monday night after dinner. And I was looking at the bubbles in the sink and the sun was setting through the window and it was shining on the bubbles in the sink. I was hand washing the dishes and they were so beautiful. The water was felt so good on my skin. The setting sun was so exquisite. There was this experience of absolute perfection of the universe, the beauty of what is so right now in this moment. And I started to cry. I was so moved. And that was like the day after I got out of the S training. And I, I've, I've, wow. I've had that experience, you know, ever since in a way. I, I mean, I don't want to be too exaggerated about it, but there's something. I went through some sort of a process where I'm capable and open to being present to the absolute profound magnificence of life. And not every minute of every day, but... I know, I know that in my heart and soul, and that came from the S training. Do you think that there that there's? I mean, I kind of had a moment like that recently, and for me, it was having this realization that I actually realized that I was a person that was not a very grateful person, and then I discovered gratitude, like truly. And for me, that has allowed for those moments. Do you think gratitude was was part of that for you? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I. I I used I would use the word transformation then. Uh, my life was transformed into a a gift, a blessing, a treasure 
not like me, like I'm special, but life itself. And, and, you know, since then, I would say gratitude and gratefulness. I've worked with Brother David Stendhal-Ross, the great Benedictine monk that, Benedictine, excuse me, monk that is the living embodiment of gratefulness. Um, so yes, and, and I, 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 I totally agree with that. I mean, gratitude instantly, no matter what's happening, if you're grateful, you can transform any, anything into a moment of, of, of revelation and illumination, I think. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. So you you worked your way into the organization, started connecting with with the found the founder, I believe, is Warner Earhart. Is that correct? Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. And and worked your way up, and then all of a sudden, this this movement around the Hunger Project was born. Mm-hmm. Would you mind telling us a little bit about that? Because I feel like that's a really big part of what uh, the foundation of of really the book and and what comes out of that. Yes. Well, um, Warner Earhart was it was and is a remarkable he's like a genius um that is really tuned into to what we're talking about let's say it's sort of ineffable um but um and i uh and i got uh engaged with the organization called est and um and then uh i was tasked with uh with a, a a job to identify what was called sphere of influence people, or you could say a more common term is VIPs that were going into the S trainings to go over the lists of people and see if there are special people that Werner should meet and have a, a, a special relationship with because they were senators or Congress people or, or movie stars or people of, of note um, uh, so that, you know, he could continue to build uh, the legitimacy and reputation of the organization, which was a little sketchy at the time um, for what he called the EST advisory board. So I was involved with that kind of work, you know, identifying who were kind of people that Werner should have a special relationship with, or at least just know they're going through the program. And um, in the course of that, I noticed that Buckminster Fuller's grandson was taking the EST training, a guy named Jamie Snyder. And, um, and I had always been curious and, and admiring of Buckminster Fuller, who was the great, um, called at that time the grandfather of the future, a really remarkable inventor, engineer, uh, architect, a man who, who, who many people revered as the grandfather of the future, a man way ahead of his time. And so um, when I found out that his grandson was taking the S training, that was an opening to have Werner Erhard meet with Buckminster Fuller. And so my friend Ron Landsman and I, we cooked up a plan to have Werner Earhart and Buckminster Fuller meet because we thought these two men, if they met, a miracle would occur. And it did. They met. And out of that relationship, something called the Hunger Project was born. Buckminster Fuller was dedicated to see if one little individual, one ordinary little individual, referring to himself, could live a life that would make a difference to all of human family and future generations, a positive difference. That was his ethic. That was his experiment. That was his life's devotion. Um, Werner Erhard was devoted to the transformation of the human condition, and he was studying hunger as one of the ways that he could take uh, tackle and have all these people who were so turned on after they took the S training be up to something beyond their own transformation be up to something that would benefit the world. So he was studying hunger and he had a folder, a whole bunch of files called 
the hunger project because he didn't have a name for the thing. And when Buckminster Fuller and Werner Erhard met, they looked at what's the most fundamental breakdown in the human condition that we could apply transformative values to in a way that it would get resolved. And they talked about hunger and they chose that. And then Werner, out of those meetings, was a very, who is a very, very bold human being. He, shortly after that, made a commitment in, in the presence of some very, other very important people. I commit, he said, to bring the commitment to end hunger into the world, to end it, not just alleviate suffering, not just do the best we can with hungry people, but to end world hunger. We have enough feed, food to feed everybody. But yet we have a you know a billion people, a quarter of humanity hungry all the time. This is 1976. So I commit to end that. And what's missing is a commitment to end it. Um, and that was sort of strange to people. Well, that doesn't feed anybody, making a commitment to end it. But we soon all saw, and Buckminster Fuller was a huge part of this, that, and this is really the subject of my book, when you make a bold, big, inspiring, kind of almost unconfrontable but glorious commitment it comes back and transforms you into the person you need to be to fulfill it. Hmm. That's how it, that's actually how it works. It's like a, if it's a commitment larger than your own life that you're not interested in taking credit for, but you want to participate in making it happen. That, that commitment, we all, you know, know the quote from W.H. Murray until one commits there's hesitation, a chance to draw back. But once you do commit, providence moves too. All unforeseen forces start to join you in in helping you fulfill that commitment. And he that's the dynamic of commitment. That's what I wrote about. And I learned that early on, and Werner knew that in his heart and soul, that there was no commitment to end world hunger. There was just these attempts to make it not so bad. But how in a world that we had two or three or four or five times as much food as we needed for everybody alive at that time, would we allow a billion people to go hungry all the time? And, and many of them starved to death. Children under five, many of them children under five. It's an integrity issue of the human family. You know, it's not just logistics. It's integrity um, that we would allow that in the space called our lives. So that. When Werner made that commitment and I was present when he made it publicly, I just knew this is why I was born. This is what my life's about. I, I am that commitment. I will become one of the people uh, participating or making this happen. I couldn't, I couldn't not. It was a calling. It just, it just swept me off my feet. When I heard him say that, I was in tears. Every part of my body was like vibrating it was it was my calling. And so the Hunger Project, we never renamed it. We couldn't. By then it was already called the Hunger Project, became my life's work. My not my just my job, but my really my life. And my family's life, my husband's life, my children's life. And we became, you know, dedicated to ending world hunger. What I, w- I wanna pause here and I wanna ask a question about something you said a moment ago. Because I think a lot of people that are going to listen to this show or, or listen to The Greatness Machine in general, and even for myself, 
um, I think, I think people want big purpose, right? They want to have, like what you just said. I'm like, Oh my gosh, so lucky to have that calling. So lucky to have that moment. How, how do you think people that maybe are like, man, I, I'd like, I, I don't know. I haven't figured out my purpose yet. I haven't figured out. I don't have that. I didn't have that Bucky, you know, moment with Buckminster Fuller and, and Werner Earhart to making this declaration and do something so audacious that struck me in the heart and made me want to go and act. What are your, what's your, what are your thoughts around folks trying to like distill that or figure that out for themselves? Well, um, th- one of the things that I, that I, you know, I assert, I believe I, it, everyone doesn't need to believe this and I don't, you know, I don't want to try to give evidence or anything, but one of the things that I assert and suggest and highly recommend is that we're on this planet now, not by accident that you and I are having this conversation in 2023, which is 23 years into the third millennium, if you put it that way. So this is the third millennium and we're only 23 years in. This is the first century of the next thousand years. And the whole world is in huge, huge flux, transformation, transition, um, dislocation. Um, Things are falling apart all around us. The political system, the healthcare system, the education system, the economic system. I mean, all of our systems and structures are disintegrating before our eyes and we can't fix them anymore. We've been propping them up and fixing them and adjusting them for way too long. And now the climate crisis is the big one because it's making it uncertain that we can even survive. So everything's at stake. And I say that's such a gift to be alive at this amazing time because then you can, you, there's so much work to do and wonderful, amazing, courageous, bold, audacious work to do. Now, if that doesn't turn you on, maybe you want to be the best bus driver in Chicago, that when people get on your bus, you know, let me just preface this by saying it's not that everybody has to have to have a big role or a small role. I just say, Feel what's your role and then play your heart out because that's what the world needs. People who are playing their heart out right now. So uh, my, my example of a bus driver or kindergarten teacher, you know, it, 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 that's different than ending world hunger, like my big giant commitment. But, but at the same time, it's not. So if I'm, the, if I'm a, a bus driver, let's say, that wants that my bus is such a place of joy and calm and acceptance an affirmation that when people get on my bus in the morning, I welcome them with so much warmth that they make sure they get there at the bus stop at 8.06 so they get on my bus because I know how to create a field of acceptance and belonging and community and joy and, you know, upliftment for people as they ride from wherever they their bus stop is to their destination. And I'm going to do that. Um and that counts. You know, um, Mother Teresa said this amazing thing. I mean, she said she didn't talk a lot, but when she did, she said good stuff. And once she said, and this is now a famous quote, she said, the, unadulter- the unadulterated love of one person can nullify the hatred of millions. I mean, just think about that. 
I can't prove that. But if I, I'll say it again and just think about it, it's, it's, it's a powerful way to live. The unadulterated love of one person can nullify the hatred of millions. That's a, a way of looking at life. I can't prove it. There's you know no evidence. It's not like that. It's a way of looking at life that gives you your life meaning and gives you a sense of your own power and capacity to matter. So I'll use a kindergarten teacher. You know, let's say you're going to just teach kindergarten for five years and then you're going to do something else, but you have this kind of calling to teach. Well, when those children are in your care, perhaps your stand or your commitment is they will never forget their kindergarten teacher because I'm going to be so devoted to having them discover who they really are as I teach them to read and write and add and subtract. Yes, I'll do all that. But the experience they're going to have with me every day for that year of their life is that they are valued, they matter, they're unique, they're amazing, they're extraordinary, and they and they can do whatever they want with their life. And that's, that's a big, bold commitment. <laughs> So mm-hmm. it doesn't need to be you end world hunger or save the Amazon or uh, stop child abuse. But if you're on the f- playing field now, and we are because we were born, we're living at an epic, epic time in history. And everything's at stake. And it's such a thrill that it is because there's, it ennobles our life. You know, the choices we make, the choices you and I make this year, 2023, really impact the future of life for a thousand years. Like, no kidding. I know that to be true. And that sounds like to some people like a burden. No, it's too much responsibility. No, that ennobles your life. That means you can live the most meaningful life any generation of humankind has ever lived. How awesome is that? How awesome is that? So I'm one of the people, at least I like to speak from this place to um, to counter discouragement resignation despair you know it's a, it, we're we're screwed it can't turn out we're it's 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 awful two i don't step over the school shootings i don't step over the climate crisis as if it isn't here i work on it i don't step over hunger and poverty i've been there i've been in war zones i've held dying babies in my arms i'm not stepping over that but i'm not about i'm about a vision that will pull us through this pain. Pain pushes until vision pulls. And we're pregnant with something, something glorious, I think. So um, I don't know. I can't remember your question now. I always forget the question. I get started. No, no. It was a good, it was a good, uh, no, no, you answered the question. I mean, I mean, my question was essentially, how does one find their calling? And, and I said, that, that it felt like a lucky moment for you to be there. And obviously like if, if you're a believer in destiny or that, that God meant for you to be there to have that moment to then go do the work, which, you know, whether you're spiritual or you don't believe in God or whatever, I I'm a believer that like, like we're not in control. I mean, we're in control of how we show up every day, but we're not in control of like of what we're called to do. And yeah. and it took me a, lo- a long time to figure that out. Right. Um, and, and so you know, I, so yes, you answered the question. In fact, the point I took away from that that you said was to show up in deep love and to yeah. give love, right? And the, and 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 I think that that's something that no matter what your spiritual beliefs are, 
no one can argue that, that that's not the, the best way that we all want to sh- have people to show up for us. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. you, you talk about on, in the book, you know, and you open with this in the book, but this idea of the source and, and, and there was a, a lot of talk around your belief in the source and that, the, that uh, talk about that a little bit, because I think that, that when we get outside of our ego, because what I'm finding now, and I've gone through a fairly big transformation over the last few years where I was very ego-driven, very on the hedonic treadmill, you know, grinding to put more money in the bank and to measure my balance sheet against somebody else's and have the vanity metrics around how big of a company I built and to now shifting away from that. Not that I don't still like to do some of that stuff, but 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 shifting away from that and being more along the lines of, of showing up and and, and the, what I say is it's, it's not about me. You know, I'm here to do the work of, of a higher calling and of a higher being. And I'm, and I'm not here to even try to figure it out. Like it's going to show, show me for me. Mm-hmm. And so my listeners have probably not heard this side of me too much because I, I, I dabble in it, but, but I have you on the show. So I'm talking to you about things that are happening to me. Um, and, and so the, the term, the source, what does that mean? And how does that play into these ideas of deep purpose and deep calling and, and, creation as far as like when you reference it in the book. Yeah, that's a very uh, interesting topic because it's, uh, it's a a little bit difficult to talk about and, and I don't want to reify it or concretize it too much. Um, It's a, um, for me, source, some people might call it God. Some people might call it the natural world or the earth, the calling of the earth right now. Uh, I founded the Pachamama Alliance with my husband, Bill, and John Perkins. And uh, Pachamama means Mother Earth. It actually means to the Quechua people, the earth, the sky, the universe, and all time. Um, And when I'm in the rainforest with the indigenous people, I feel the source of life, the spirit of life, um, when I'm open coming through me. Um, Because the indigenous people, they they don't live in the forest. They live of the forest. They are an expression of the forest. And source, to me, is the expression of the spirit of life. You know, for religious people, you might call it the Holy Spirit. For um, Muslim people, it might be called the, 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 uh, the through line of mercy. Um, there's different terms from different religious uh, disciplines. And for atheists, uh, it may be, or people who are really secular, it may be you know, the experience of uh, maybe the, the evolu- evolutionary force that puts the st- put the stars in motion and generated the universe and created the possibility of life itself. Um, but I think we all know at some level of our being that there's moments where it's very present that we're tapped into something way beyond our own personality, identity, or agenda. And it, it may be just when you see a, a, a newborn baby, or it may be when you get up early enough to see the sunrise. It may be something as simple as standing at the base of a, a waterfall and, and feeling the mist and seeing how glorious it is. Or that moment, you know, when I was washing the dishes and the bubbles were so beautiful. <laughs> Was that a delusion or was that me being in touch with source? I think it was me being in touch with source. And source is a taproot for, uh, and it's, 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 a, um, it's, it's miraculous and it's beautiful and it's always here. Um, 
And we sometimes it gets obfuscated or blocked by our personality, our personal agenda, our, our, you know, some people would call it our ego, our ego. I mean, we all have one and we can put it in service to something. Um, but some, when it touches your soul, when you're, when you're close to tears, because something so beautiful or so magnificent or so moving to you, that's source moving through, moving through. When we say we're moved, I say source is moving through. I think that's really what that term means. So, um, and everybody knows that, you know, we don't talk about it that much because it's hard to talk about, but everybody has those experiences. I'm sure of it. And they discount them sometimes like, Ooh, that's too woo woo. Or that was weird. Or wow. I'll never forget that. Or, Oh my God, I'm in touch with something greater than myself. So, um, we interpret it all kinds of ways, but it's here. It's, um, and the more open you are to it, in my view, the more fulfilled your commitment to whatever you're up to can be for you. Um, and I'm not in touch with it all the time, but I know it's here. And, and I'm going to even say in, in it, it's like a little bit too much to even say that. Um, right. Um, but for some people, it's, it's clearly their experience of the Holy Spirit or God. Or, But in the natural world, for example, I'm, you know, when I really am troubled and confused and hurt and despondent, I know if I go outside and sit at the base of one of these glorious redwood trees that are near my house, something happens to me and I'm okay again. What is that? I don't know. But um, I'll name that source. Thank you. I appreciate you sharing that because I, 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 I knew what you meant by it. <laughs> but I think for folks that are reading the book, they may not. You know, they maybe haven't had that experience. And I love what you said, and I think it's important for listeners to kind of hear that again, which is the more you do it, the more you can connect with it, right? The more that opportunity exists. Um, and not to discount it, right? Because mm-hmm. it, it, it's, I have a really tough time. I, I think I had a friend I was talking to about this, and, and, and we had a conversation about it was on Netflix or something on discovery channel. It's like how many galaxies are and how many planets there are. And when you start doing the math, it was like 21 sextillion, you know, planets, yep. you know, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so, so you start seeing, thinking about things in terms of that, by the way, that that's a 21 with 17 zeros after it. Oh my God. Um, you know, that, that's a lot of billions uh, planets, not even just, you know, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable when you start thinking like that, like the, uh, the enormity of the world we're in. Right. And, and to just think about just you, it just feels like it's this, there's got to be more, you know, at least the way I see it. Mathematically, how did that happen? I can't tell you, but right. I, I could tell you if I, if I start to think mystically about it, I'm like, yeah, I can't explain it, but I can explain something mystical probably created it. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, that's, that, that makes it a lot easier. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, so no, I appreciate you sharing that. So I want to I want to pull back in because I know we're, we're, we're I want to get you out of here on time. We got about twelve minutes. Um, so you obviously took that moment and and the human the the hunger uh, excuse me the it, I want to make sure I get the name of the, the hunger project. Is that correct? Yes. Uh huh. Right. Yeah. And, and and with that, this became a worldwide sensation. Six million you know people were involved with this. Um, it went global. The, uh, was it the United Nations that got involved with it as well? Uh-huh. Tell us a little bit about that because I think that's such a great example of something like to to Buckminster Fuller's comment: the, "How can one little man turn something so large and enormous 
this is literally a perfect, you know, analogy for that. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, we, uh, yeah, let's see. Well, um, we created a movement really. And a movement is different than a campaign. You drive a campaign, you know, our political campaigns are driven by money and by lobbying and by people who are trying to win and defeat somebody else. A movement is something that flows through you and it, it is so captivating that other people join. It's like being swept uh, into a, a, a stream or something that is moving. And um, we created with so much heart and, and core integrity, I would say, uh, at the very heart of the Hunger Project that it became a movement. And that's how we uh, were able to inspire uh, millions of people to get involved in committing themselves to playing some role in ending world hunger. And the role they played was to commit to it. Then some of them took action and some of them took some, many of them started organizations. Thousands of organizations came out of the hunger project, thousands of them and, you know, hundreds of millions and billions of actions. And then some people just signed a little card that said, I am committed to making the end of hunger an idea whose time has come. And this phrase, an idea whose time has come, comes from Victor Hugo. Uh, and the full phrase is, nothing is as powerful as an idea whose time has come. When yeah. an idea's time comes, you can't stop it. And so our goal was to cause an idea's time to come, the end of world hunger. And um, that's a very, you know, kind of esoteric, philosophical, I don't know, ontological thing. But we did that. Every organization on this planet before the Hunger Project was alleviating the suffering, was um, helping little Maria in Guatemala with $15 a month, was, re uh, was giving aid, who was, uh, was rearranging um, uh, food lines, was sending uh, irrigation techniques. All of that stuff is still happening and very, very important. But now it's in a context that is content Inside of a context, we're ending world hunger. And the people living in the conditions of hunger, rather than being hopeless, helpless victims that we have to rescue because those poor souls are hungry and we have to feel sorry for them and, you know, take some of what we have and give it to them. That paradigm, which, which was the way it was before the Hunger Project was born with, you know, middle of the night photographs with kids with flies in their eyes and bloated bellies and you know, skinny as a rail and making people feel guilty because they were about to have another sandwich or pizza in the middle of the night. And they see this on the screen so that they give money. That way of perceiving hunger is no longer the case. You'll see in every brochure of any, every hunger organization, a picture of a young woman who's, who, who's I matter, you know, <laughs> a billboard or something. So we, we shifted the conversation from a billion starving people that are suffering there. We have to feel sorry for them and help them to there's a billion people, people, not hungry people, people living in the conditions of hunger and poverty, whole and complete people, just like you and me living in the conditions of hunger and poverty, standing on the front lines of ending world hunger by transforming those conditions and you and I, who are not living in those conditions, we have the privilege to join them so that mm -hmm. we're all in the playing field together. We're co-equal partners. It's not like we're, we've got everything and we need to give it to them. No, 
we're, they know things that we, we go to workshops to get the kind of inner strength that they have to live through the day. You know, they have more courage to live through the day than you and I are going to need in our lifetime to feed their kids when there's nothing there and there's no water. So, and we do read 10 books and go to workshops to get that kind of inner strength. So we, it's the haves and the haves, not H-A-L-V-E-S, but haves, H-A-V-E-S and H-A-V-E-S. We have, we need each other. And those of us in the affluent world, we need to be humbled. We need to have work that makes a difference. We need to find our inner strength. We have so much material la-la land out here that we forget that who we really are are self-reliant, self-sufficient human beings, and that we, like the people who are self-reliant, self-sufficient human beings living in those horrible conditions, are together here on one planet to make all of it work better. So it's a it's a really beautiful thing, the Hunger Project. And we this thing about causing an idea's time to come, it was almost like an experiment. But now it's happened. Every single organization working on hunger and even poverty in the world now speaks about ending it. And that's a very different way to work on something. And of course, there's setbacks. And of course, it's challenging. Of course, the pandemic, you know, set back a lot of things. Of course, the AIDS crisis made it some, some of it ever more difficult. But when I started working on hunger, I'll just tell you this one statistic. There were 4.3 billion people on earth in 1977. 4.3 billion. 4.3 billion. Of those 4.3 billion, a billion people, one quarter of humanity was hungry all the time and many of them starving to death. 44,000 deaths a day, 44,000 of children under five. Today, we have, we just, we've just hit eight billion people on this planet. Um, No, I'm sorry. Seven. Is it seven? (laughs) I've lost track. I think it's I think, I think it is. I think it is seven. It was like 7.8 okay. last time I looked. Yeah, so, yeah. I, think it's, I think it's, 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 I think we've just hit 8 billion and we have 12,000 people dying every day from 44,000 wow. to 12,000 children under five. That's a huge drop and wow. almost twice as many people. So this is a miracle and it is ending. You know, there's setbacks and it's difficult, but it is. So that wasn't possible when we started, but it's become an idea whose time has come. And that comes from human commitment. That's why I wrote this book. We need now to commit to end the climate crisis, to restore the climate. We can do it. We can do it. It's not impossible. We created the climate crisis. We can reverse it. We can. We must stand for that. Not must. I don't, I don't need to put it that way. I stand for that. I stand for that. And that's powerful. That creates a context for all the content, all the solar panels and all the recycling and all the new metals that are being invented and all the coal fire plants being closed to be in a context. We are getting it done rather than we're trying as hard as we can and maybe we can do it. That's a different space. So the Hunger Project established the power of commitment, enormous power of commitment. And, you know, if you've ever run a marathon, you commit to running 26 miles, you get yourself ready to do it. And then when you're in the marathon, you're going to goddamn get to the finish line. No, no kidding. (laughs) Um, And then you become someone who can do it rather than, you know, 
you you give up. You just don't. Yeah. You're committed. So, you know, there's a million examples, but that's the commitment is so much more powerful than we know. And we're so much more powerful than we know. So that's really what I'm trying to say in that book. I love it. My gosh, what a treat having you here. Um, I'm going to ask you our, our greatness question. But before we, I actually ask, I'm going to tell you, um, when I was reading your book, I realized that you, that you had mentioned that you love the poetry of Rumi. Mm-hmm. And I, I have two sons, and my oldest son's named Rumi. So we oh, named him after the, the poet Rumi. And, oh. and, and when I named my younger son Pablo after Pablo Neruda. So, oh, fantastic. You're, you're, you're a poet. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, my, I, I wrote my, poet, my, my purpose for Stegen. I said that my purpose is to live a poetic life. Mm. So I thought you might appreciate that. I um, appreciate that. I love that. Yeah, I saw that. I'm like, oh, I got to tell her that my oldest is named <laughs> Rumi. Um, I love him, man. He's amazing. Um, all right. I'm going to ask you the greatest question. I know I want to get you out of here on time, and then we can um, let everyone know where to find the book, which is in places where all, all great books are sold. But um, So our greatness question, we ask all of our guests this, which is what is the number one barrier to creating greatness that you've overcome in your life, and how did you overcome it? Um, I'd say the greatest barrier that people have is to, they're afraid to commit. Um, they think it's going to trap them, entrap them. And what actually happens is it frees you. And if you're, if you're afraid to commit, you keep your options open and do I go this way? Do I that way? I want to make sure my options are open. You can't move. You're, it's lateral. When you commit all your energy goes forward and you're pulled into a place where you can fully express your gifts. So um, fear of commitment. Uh, and the answer is commitment. And, and I'd say commitment is how to find it is what breaks your heart and what makes your heart sing. You mm. put those two things together and you can discover what you're committed to. What I you love it so much. Yeah. Thank you so much. So the book is uh, Living a Committed Life by Lynn Twist. Lynn, what a pleasure having you here. So much gratitude from myself and my GOT family for introducing me to your work and, and the world for introducing your work. I, 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 the world conspires to bring things together. And I was I didn't mention this, but I was um, at, this was after you, we had already booked you on the show, but um, I, I just finished The Path Made Clear by Oprah. Mm. And, and she talks about her work with you. So I'm like, oh my gosh, like Oprah's talking about Lynn and Ken Honda's talking about Lynn. I can't wait to meet you. I finally get to connect with you. And, and I'm so grateful to get you here to, to share your work with our audience. Um, thank you so much. So much gratitude for me. Thank you, Darius. And thank you for the work you're doing and the commitment that you live. And um, please give my love, really my love and my gratitude to the members of GOT when you go to that meeting. I, I miss them. I love them. And they, I, I, um, I treasure uh, that community. Of, and even the ones I hadn't met before, like you, I, I trust that community. I treasure that community. And I, um, I send them my love. Thank you. I will do that. Um, I do want to make sure that we let people know where they can connect with you for your work, the book, The Soul of Money, the book, Liv- Living a Committed Life, as well as anything around Pachamama Alliance or the uh, – Soul of Money Institute. Is there any anything? Any what's the best way for people to learn more about you and your work? Well, uh, we didn't talk much about the work in the rainforest, but it's called Pachamama.org is where to go to find out. Pachamama, P A C H A M A M A, all one word. Pachamama.org, and there's courses that are free, and there's trips to the Amazon that are not free, but 
important. Um, and beautiful videos, and it's just a, a treasure, uh, uh, that work. And then soulofmoney.org is um, my website for the Soul of Money work, the book, Living a Committed Life. Um, and then you can go on the Soul of Money website, and uh, or you can go to Living a Committed Life, and you'll see, you can, you know, sign up for our, our Wednesday Wisdoms. You can, of course, order the book on any one of your uh, online ways or, or go to local bookstores and, and order it there or buy it there. I, I, I love bookstores. I want us to keep them going. <laughs> and then um, and then we do programs. We at the Soul Money Institute do a lot of really extraordinary programs for women. So I just want to put a play, plug in for that. We do something called the Remarkable Women's Journey we do something called the Sophia Circle because I think this is the Sophia century. Um, and we do fundraising trainings online that are really effective for people working in the social profit sector. So um, there's all kinds of wonderful resources from Pachamama.org and soulofmoney.org. And then Living a Committed Life, the book is, uh, I want it to be everywhere and it kind of is. Uh, you can just type it in and, and it'll come up. Uh, on many sites. And also, uh, if if your local bookstore doesn't have them, tell them to order it. <laughs> yeah, we'll do that. So I'll make sure my team puts all this in the show notes. Um, you guys, there's so much greatness here. Uh, check out all of Lynn's work. I mean, it's like, we, we probably could do five hours on this show right now just to talk about all of it. Um, but uh, yeah, this is, this is such a treat having you here. We'll make sure we put all that in the show notes. Um, with that said, Listeners, uh, leaders were givers. Make sure you share this with people that need to hear it. There's so much greatness that Lynn is building into the world and through her different projects. So we want to make sure we're sharing that with other leaders. And uh, with that said, until next time, thank you so much, Lynn. Appreciate you. Thank Peace you, out. Darius. Thank you. We love you guys. Take care. Bye-bye. You are listening to The Greatness Machine, and that's a wrap for today. Listen, if you love what you heard, subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform that you're tuning in on so that you don't miss any of our future episodes. We have tons of great people coming on, and we're, we're stoked to have you here to enjoy it with us. Leave us a review. Tell us what you love most about this particular episode. We love getting the reviews. We love to see what you guys love most. And if this particular episode you know, made you think of someone who's leveling up in their business and in their life, print screen, share it with them. Leaders are the best givers. And after all, we're all here to support and grow with each other. And in case you want to see some of the fun behind the scenes shots or some of the things that we're doing, I'm actually writing about this in my weekly newsletter. Go to www.therealdarius.com and subscribe to my newsletter. We're talking about fun things like business and life and mindfulness and cryptocurrencies and gosh, I don't even know everything and anything, but it's tons of fun stuff I write about. I try to get it out on a weekly basis. You can subscribe at www.therealdarius.com. And with that said, look, thank you guys so much. I appreciate you. I love you. Peace. We're out of here. See you guys on the next one. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. 
Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.